Friends, many years ago, a Christian man was walking through an art gallery there in Scotland when he came upon a small boy who was gazing at a particular painting of the crucifixion. The man stood there for a few moments, and he was watching this little boy interact with this painting. When the man decided to walk up to the little boy, and he put his hand on his shoulder, and he said, Son, do you know what that is a picture of? Why, sir, the lad responded, don't you know? That's our Lord dying on a cross and bearing our sin. With that, the, the man patted the young lad on the shoulder, and he said, well done, young man. And then the man turned away, and he began to wander and look at many of the other religious paintings that were here inside this art gallery. Well, a few moments went by when all of a sudden the man felt a tug on his shirt from behind. And he looked down, and there was that same little boy standing beside him. And the little boy looked up at him and said, Excuse me, sir, I forgot to tell you one thing. He's not dead anymore. He arose. Christian friends, we've gathered together here on this very special Sunday morning, and that is the reason why we are here. He's not dead anymore. He arose. Jesus' resurrection is the heart. It's the soul of the gospel. It's the foundation for all Christian doctrine. It's the foundation for all of our Christian lives. Without the resurrection, the Bible says that we would still be spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins. We would still be under the wrath of God. We would still be destined for a life of eternal destruction. Without the resurrection... Christianity is nothing more than just wishful thinking. Without the resurrection, Christianity is just another meaningless hope. It's just another useless philosophy that can't change a life. But friends, praise God. On that Sunday morning when Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb, God raised up his banner of victory over all that Jesus accomplished with his perfect life his sacrificial death on the cross. Because of the resurrection, the gospel that we believe in has real power. It has power to save us from our sins. It has power to give us new life. It has power to guarantee us that we will have resurrection life one day with Christ. Family, so much is riding on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you and I can be so thankful that in the pages of the Bible, God has given us sufficient proof. God has given us reliable evidence to confirm the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. You know, when we scan through the pages of God's Word, without question, the most important chapter on the subject of resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I want to invite you to turn there with me this morning as we consider today some of the Bible's powerful proofs to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, here in 1 Corinthians 15, here in the New Testament, the writer is the Apostle Paul. In this chapter, Paul presents the most extensive treatment of the resurrection of anywhere else to be found in Scripture. 
Here in this chapter, Paul, the writer, is not trying to convince the Corinthians about resurrection. He's really trying to help them with some confusion that they've been struggling with regarding the topic of resurrection. Not necessarily Christ's resurrection, but what that has to do with their own resurrection. Well, in order to lay the right foundation, if Paul is going to help clear up their misunderstandings, Paul's got to go backwards a little bit and settle some, some truths first regarding the resurrection of Christ. And this morning, family, in the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to see as Paul rehearses for these Corinthian Christians some of these evidences, some of these proofs which confirm the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Family, just a moment ago, I mentioned that the resurrection really is. It's the heart and soul of the gospel. And it is indeed the foundation for all of our Christian life, all of our Christian doctrine. So it's, it's absolutely essential for you and for me that we have a very confident assurance that Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. So family, as we look today here at 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses... We're going to consider today, friends, five powerful proofs. Five powerful proofs that confirm that Jesus rose out of the tomb. That's what we're going to talk about today. Five powerful proofs that confirm that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. Here's the first one. If you're taking some notes, the first powerful proof we want to talk about today that's convincing evidence for Jesus' resurrection, number one, is the powerful proof of transformed believers. Number one, the powerful proof of transformed believers. Now, I hope you have a copy of the Bible open there in front of you. There's a pew Bible there. Maybe you don't own a Bible. Well, there's a Bible right there in front of you. You take that Bible home today. We want you to have that Bible. Take it with you. But in 1 Corinthians 15, would you look with me at the first two verses? Scripture says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. Now, friends, we're going to begin to look at these verses this morning. We're going to consider today some proofs of Jesus' resurrection. It's important for us to understand this local congregation at Corinth did not outright reject the doctrine of Jesus' resurrection, but they certainly were questioning it. They were having some misunderstandings about the resurrection and how Jesus' resurrection applied to their own resurrection someday. Now, how did Paul hear about this? Well, we're not really sure. We don't know how Paul learned that the Corinthians were struggling with this topic. But we do know that once Paul found out, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he included this topic in his letter. Paul wanted to take opportunity in his letter to help them uh, work through this issue, help them be reminded of the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes that, the, that transformed believers, transformed people in their own church stand as evidence, number one, that Jesus indeed had been resurrected. Look what Paul says there in verse 1 again. Paul says, I declare to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, 
which you received and in which you stand. You see, Paul's making a point here. Paul's implying in these first two verses that the Corinthian Christians themselves, they were living proof. They were living proof that Jesus had been resurrected. They were living proof that the gospel was real. And of course, at the very heart of the gospel is the truth of Jesus' resurrection. In other words, family, here were these Christians. These Christians had once been pagans. They had been wrapped up in all these paganism, lies, and falsehoods. Some of these Corinthians had been Jews. They were Jewish believers and following all the rules and regulations of Judaism. And out of both of those groups, they had believed upon Jesus Christ. They believed the gospel, and their lives were completely changed. Paul preached to these people the gospel. And what was in the gospel? What was the two-pronged message of the gospel? It was the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he was resurrected back to life on the third day. And so these Christians at Corinth believed that. They heard the gospel. They believed it. Their lives were totally transformed. And so that was what Paul was saying is, there's your first proof. Just look around your own church Look at all these people whose lives have been totally transformed by the message of the gospel. I love this great quote from Dr. Warren Wearsby. He says this, a dead Savior can't save anybody. That's right. A dead Savior can't save anybody. And so the very fact that the Corinthians' lives had been changed and transformed, the fact that these Corinthians were still marching forward, serving Jesus, that was living proof. That was proof number one, that the gospel was real. And by implication, if the gospel's real, in the gospel is the message of Jesus' resurrection. You know what, friends? Here's what I'm saying to you this morning. Even if we didn't have all of these evidences in God's Word, even if we didn't have all of these remarkable proofs and, and firsthand eyewitnesses' accounts in Scripture, even if we didn't have them, friends, the, one of the greatest evidences that you and I can point to about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what has happened in each one of our lives since we believed the gospel. Dear friend, when you believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, something happened to you. You changed. You're not the same anymore. You're not the same person you used to be. You don't think the same. You don't act the same. You don't do the same things. You don't believe the same things. You don't have the same values anymore. You've changed. All of that change happened when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You felt your legs be unshackled from sin. And you felt that fog of condemnation finally go away from your heart. You felt the scales of unbelief go away from your eyes. And you finally found joy. Joy in Christ that can never be taken away from you. Friends, Scripture says that awesome power that transformed you is the very same power that raised Jesus Christ up out of the grave. In your notes there, I gave you a great Scripture from Ephesians 1.19. This same gospel that has changed you is the same gospel power that raised Christ from the dead. The Bible says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to 
the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Listen, friends, this is the first powerful proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Corinthian believers, all the believers around the world, and guess what? The believers that are in this room, our lives have been changed. And because we have had these transformed lives, that is a powerful proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because were not for us hearing the gospel, we would not be changed. But were it not for the resurrection, there wouldn't be a gospel that we believed. So the fact that we've been transformed, friends, is a great proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. Now here's a second one, family, number two. The powerful proof of the Old Testament scriptures. Number two, the powerful proof of the Old Testament scriptures. Look with me in verse three. Look what Paul writes. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, family, just a moment ago, Paul made reference to the gospel. The gospel. This was the message that he preached to these Corinthians, and we talked about that gospel, how it totally transformed their lives. This was a gospel that the Corinthians believed, they embraced it, and what happened? It totally changed them, transformed their lives. Well, now in verses 3 and 4, family, we find out a little bit more about the content, the content of what was in that gospel message. In fact, family, we could really call these two verses here the heart of the gospel, The heart of the gospel. These verses that we we just read, family, these verses show very plainly that if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot call yourself a Christian unless you believe in these verses we just read, namely the resurrection of Jesus. In In these verses we read, Paul declares what he preached, what he said there, first of all. In other words, of First importance. When Paul came to the Corinthian people, what did he preach to them? First of all, first importance was the gospel. Here's a little powerful two-part confession of faith by which all true Christians are measured. You say, I wonder if I'm a Christian. Well, here's a little two-part test to test and see, are you a true Christian? If you cannot affirm the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross for our sins, and you can't affirm the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, then the Bible says you are not a Christian. Because those are the two prongs that make the gospel message. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, and then on the third day, He was raised again. That is the gospel. Those two parts. And to be a Christian, you must affirm both of them. But notice, family, Paul gives here a second proof. A second proof is the fact that this confession of faith, these two prongs are both taught by the Old Testament scriptures. Look what Paul says there. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, family, here's your second proof. A second piece of reliable evidence 
for Jesus' resurrection is the credibility of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament actually taught and predicted Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in these two verses we just read, Paul doesn't give us any specific examples of any Old Testament scriptures, but can I'll, I'll just point out one or two for us this morning. Here are one or two valuable Old Testament scriptures that were surely known by Paul and all the apostles and preachers of the early church. In your notes, I gave you one of them there is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 5, says that the Messiah would be smitten of God. He would be afflicted, wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. Family, that's from the ancient book of Isaiah. There's a great prophecy that was predicting the death of Jesus on the cross. There's the death of Jesus on the cross predicted in the Old Testament. What about resurrection? Well, there's a scripture I gave you there too, a very famous scripture written by King David. In Psalm 16, verse 10, King David wrote centuries before Jesus was even born. David wrote, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or in other words, the grave. Sheol is another word for the grave. You will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, family, here's what's so great about that scripture I just read to you, that Psalm 16 verse. When Peter was preaching the gospel message to his fellow Jews, there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, it was the day of Pentecost, and Peter is preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. Peter uses that verse in his sermon. Peter uses Psalm 16.10 as part of his sermon to prove to Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one who was raised again the third day. Family, it's very interesting too. There's one more scripture I'll just mention here. It's one that Jesus mentions when Jesus was here upon earth in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, all the religious leaders were giving Jesus such a hard time. Jesus had claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. And they kept hounding him. They just kept harassing Jesus. They said, show us something, Jesus. Show us a sign. Show us something awesome. Show us a miracle that's going to prove that you really are who you say you are. And Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Family, here's the point. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is presenting these powerful proofs for Christ's resurrection. Well, if you're going to do that, you can't leave out the reliability of the Old Testament text. Look in your notes. I give you a wonderful quote from Dr. John MacArthur. He said over and over again, either directly or indirectly, literally or in figures of speech, the Old Testament foretold Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. No Jew 
who believed and understood the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, no Jew would, be, would have been surprised that Messiah was ordained to die and be buried and resurrected. That's right. That's exactly right. So Christians, when Paul uses that little phrase, according to the Scriptures, Paul's doing that purposefully. He's doing that very wisely because he knows the Old Testament Scriptures are credible. They stand as a credible testimony to the resurrection. Just like modern lawyers today, modern lawyers in the courtroom, they want to call in expert witnesses who will testify on their behalf, on their side of the case. So this is what Paul was doing. He knew that the Old Testament scriptures were an expert witness that he could use as a proof of Jesus' resurrection. Now let's move on. Here's a third proof that Paul wants to share with these Corinthian believers. He's trying to straighten them out. Their thinking had been awry on this subject of resurrection, so Paul's setting the stage by talking about Jesus' resurrection first. Here's a third proof, the powerful proof of firsthand eyewitnesses. The powerful proof of firsthand eyewitnesses. Would you look with me at verse 5? Paul said that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present day, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Friends, whether we might be talking about the ancient courtrooms of the past, or whether we might talk about the modern courtrooms of the 21st century, one thing, one thing has always been a part of the judicial system around the world, and that is the testimony of eyewitnesses. In fact, family, eyewitness testimony has always been considered the strongest of all the evidences. Eyewitness testimony is always considered to be the most reliable form of evidence in a court of law. When that person comes in off the street, they put their hand on the Bible, and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and they're there on the witness stand, and they say under oath, I saw that guy in a hit-and-run accident. Or when the lady comes in and she swears on the Bible and she says, I saw this lady shoplifting and putting things in her bag. Listen, that eyewitness testimony, that carries powerful weight in a courtroom. You want to know why? Because eyewitness testimony is called direct evidence. Direct evidence. Evidence. It is more powerful than what is often called circumstantial evidence. You see, in circumstantial evidence, juries and judges have to listen to all these little pieces and they have to try to connect the dots themselves. They just hear all these bits of data and then they have to try to 
put together the circumstances in their own thinking. But direct evidence doesn't require that. The direct evidence gets right to the point. The eyewitness is direct. He says, I was there and this is what I saw. Well, family, in verses 5 to 7, what Paul gives us here is direct evidence. Eyewitness testimony of individuals who saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. They saw him in his glorified body. You'll remember from your reading of the Gospels, and we read it this morning in our scripture reading from the Gospel of John. Of course, we know that some of the women saw Jesus early on. They were the first at the tomb, the first to see the resurrection happening. But the first man to see Jesus, according to the Bible, was Peter. Here in the text, he's also called Cephas, Peter. Following that, Paul continues to write there in the verses we read, then after Peter saw him, Scripture says that the twelve saw him. Now the twelve, the twelve is a nickname. That's a nickname for the disciples. This was a nickname that they carried around even after Judas killed himself. You remember Judas was ejected from the group. He, he uh, turned on Christ. We know that that name continued even after Judas was gone. They were called the Twelve. These were men who spent three and a half years or so with Jesus, and they had close fellowship with him. They were taught by him personally. And Jesus appeared to these eleven. He appeared to his disciples, and he lit a fire in them that burned in them so hard that they, they testified of Jesus for the rest of their days. And nothing could ever put that fire out. Not persecution, uh, not beatings, not even martyrdom. I mean, these were men who, who gave their last breath for Jesus Christ. These were men of the highest quality, these apostles. They launched the early church. These were men who marched the gospel around the globe. But now as we shift gears a little bit, notice what Paul does. He shifts from the quality of people to the quantity of people. Did you see that in verse 6? Yes, Jesus in his resurrected body, Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. But then, now look at the numbers. Now he appeared to 500 Christians at once. 500 Christians at once saw the risen Jesus now, nowhere in the Bible do we have the exact details of that event or where it took place, but it was a well-known fact. It was well-known in the early church. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, did you see this? Paul tells the Corinthians that the majority of that group, the majority of that 500 who saw Jesus were still alive. They were still alive and you could go and talk to them. And they would tell you what it was like to be in that group and see Jesus that day. Family, by the time 1 Corinthians was written, it's about 20 years or so. It's about 20 years after Jesus was raised. But Paul knew, even though some of that 500 had died, even though some of that group had passed away, Paul still knew the vast majority of that 500 were still alive. And so Paul tells the Corinthians... Yeah, some of that group has fallen asleep. Some of them have died, but the vast majority are still alive. They would give eyewitness testimony. They were there. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. And then did you see Paul adds at the end there of verse 7, 
After the 500, who was next? It was James. James is important. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't even a Christian until this moment. It wasn't until he finally met Jesus resurrected that James finally believed. And then we see there, followed by the rest of the apostles. Family, look, look. That's a list. Boy, that's a powerful list. Every single one of those people listed, that's direct evidence. That's not circumstantial. That's direct evidence. Those are eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. They saw Jesus with their own two eyes. They knew his resurrection was real. You know, family, one of the most notorious courtroom trials, we're talking a little bit here about courtrooms. You know, one of the most notorious trials of the last century was the O.J. Simpson trial. Most of us lived through that. How could we forget it? We all lived through that. We remember Judge Ito. We remember Mark Furman. We remember the bloody gloves, right? How are we ever going to forget this? But family, you know what's so interesting to me? No one saw O.J. Simpson commit the crime. No one saw O.J. Simpson commit any crime, and yet you take a poll, and polls have been done, the majority of American people today believe that O.J. Simpson was guilty. Nobody saw him do anything, but the majority of Americans believe he was guilty. I say, where are you going with this? Here's the point. Jesus was seen firsthand by 500 people. And yet that is somehow up for discussion. Everyone's convinced that O.J. did it, but 500 plus witnesses saw Jesus, touched Jesus, talked to Jesus, and now, even today, that's a question? We're discussing that as if it maybe it didn't happen? As if that's somehow up for debate? Listen, friends, here in our text, we have the credible eyewitness testimony. Paul wants us to be confident, to be really assured Jesus did rise from the dead. Listen, let me tell you something. When you affirm your belief in the resurrection of Jesus, you're not stepping out on the crazy limb. All right, you're not stepping out with people who believe in Roswell, New Mexico, and Area 51. All right, you're, you're not stepping out there with people who believe in alien autopsy, okay? You're not in the group of people who believe that JFK was assassinated by the second shooter on the grassy knoll. That's not the same category. We're talking about something here that is truly believable. We have hundreds and hundreds of credible eyewitnesses who gave direct testimony that they saw Jesus and they spent the rest of their lives willing to die because of what they saw. Acts 1-3 reminds us this too, that Jesus just didn't appear in a little flash here or there. That's not what scripture says. Acts 1-3 says that Jesus appeared for 40 days. 40 days of appearances. That's like six weeks worth of appearances, all leading up to his ascension back to glory. Now let's move on. Let me give you a fourth powerful proof of the resurrection. Number four, the powerful proof of Paul's personal experience. Number four, the powerful proof of Paul's 
personal experience. Look at verse 8. Paul says, then, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Family, Paul's been laying out all these eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, touched Jesus, heard Jesus, met Jesus. Guess what? He's going to include himself. He's going to include himself. Now, the question we ought to be asking is, why has Paul put himself last? I mean, he's the author of this letter. Why don't you list yourself first and then all those other people? No, Paul put all the other people first and himself last. Why did Paul do that? I'll tell you why. He had a sensitive heart about his conversion. Paul had a really sensitive spot in his heart for how he had come to Christ. Some of you will remember the account of it in Acts 9. Paul, the apostle, used to be Saul, the religious terrorist. This was a man who persecuted the church. This was a man who had no problem hauling women and children off to jail simply because they were Christians. This is a man who had people killed because they were Christians. But you remember the story in Acts 9. The Bible tells us the narrative of what happened. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's got letters in his hands to go capture some more Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for some punishment. But there on that road, Paul meets the risen Christ. Paul meets the risen Christ. This was not only after the resurrection, this was even after the ascension. So this is very, very special when Paul meets Jesus here. But rather than allowing that event to puff Paul up with pride, Paul viewed himself as the least of all the apostles. He said, I'm the least of all of them. Why? He said, because I was a persecutor. I was a terrorist against Jesus' church. And so look how Paul describes himself there. Did you see it in verse 8? There's an interesting little phrase. How does he describe himself? One born out of due time. That is a very odd phrase. New King James has it. One born out of due time. If you have the ESV or NASB, yours says untimely born. NIV says abnormally born. That's probably the best way to capture it. Abnormally born. That refers to a birth that's abnormal. It's not normal. It's different than all the other ones. This one's different. It's very unique. It stands out like a a premature birth, like a a puppy that's born at the very end who ends up being this runt of the litter. That's the word picture Paul has in mind for himself, how he became a Christian, how he became ultimately an apostle. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy really to be called an apostle for what I did to Jesus' church. But we remember God did use Paul in a mighty way. This guy Paul ended up writing about two-thirds of the New Testament scriptures. Paul traveled around the world as a missionary, launched churches, 
Scripture says Paul even saw the third heaven. He saw heaven itself. But that never puffed Paul up. None of those things ever made him proud. He knew he had worked very hard. He worked so hard. He said, I even worked harder than, than, than all the other apostles. He said, but I don't take credit for it. It's God's grace. God's grace was at work in me. So family, listen, if there's one special person we could point to who was very uniquely qualified to tell us about the resurrection of Jesus, well, it certainly is the Apostle Paul. Paul met Jesus. Paul met Jesus there on the road, and it changed his life. Friend, with that being said, can I just pause right here for a moment on this Easter Sunday? Friend, can you say... Can you say that there was a day in your life when you met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road, the road that is your life? Can you say that you've met the Lord Jesus on the road of your life? Has there ever been a moment, friend, in your life, in your history, in your story, when you were brought face to face with your brokenness, with your own sin, when you became real, under this realization that you needed a Savior. You know, friends, so many people today, so many people today are willing to acknowledge Jesus with their brains. They're willing to acknowledge that Jesus really lived in history, that he really was a, a man, maybe even that he really died on the cross. They believe that Jesus really existed they believe that he lived in history. But listen, friend, listen. It is something quite different to invite Jesus into your life, to believe upon him as Savior. It's something quite different to acknowledge in your soul that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins to open your heart to Him, to believe on Him, to trust Him, to trust Him alone as your salvation. Family, the Bible says repentance and faith is what transpired here in Paul's heart on the road to Damascus. And that's what the Lord wants from every one of us. That repentant, humble heart that is aware of our sins and that acknowledges it, but then by faith, we believe on Jesus Christ. And we ask Jesus to be our Lord, our Savior. We believe upon Him and we welcome Him to be the Lord of our life. Friend, no matter where you are on the road of life today, I would urge you to believe upon Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is why He came. That's why He died on the cross. That's why He rose again to give you and me as sinners, to give us salvation. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friend, you must come to Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only Savior. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. Friend, look to Christ today. If you are not a Christian, I would urge you to open your heart to Jesus today. Confess your sin to Him. Believe upon Him and welcome Him into your life. The Bible says His resurrection is the indisputable proof 
that he is the only Savior to be trusted in. Friend, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, but maybe you'd like to be. Or maybe you have questions about what that means or how to do that or what that looks like. Well, friend, I would love to talk to you. Stop me after the service today or call me this week. My email is in the bulletin on the back side. You can email me. You can call me. I would love to connect with you and show you how you can become a follower of the Lord Jesus. Well, friends, let's talk now about one last proof. One final proof that Paul gives in this scripture. Number five, the powerful proof of the universal message. Number five, the powerful proof of the universal message. Look at verse 11. Paul says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Friend, I want you to imagine you're walking down your, the hallway at your workplace and all of a sudden one of your co-workers comes up running to you and they say, hey, I just heard we're getting a 20% bonus in our paychecks next week. Now, how do you think you'd respond to that? Some of you initially, you might be a little skeptical. But what would you think if 15 minutes later you were getting a drink at the water fountain and the corporate secretary of the company told you the same thing? Suppose you go back to your work and a half hour later, one of your supervisors comes in and you overhear the supervisor say something about the 20% bonus. Well, pretty soon, that consistency of message would start to give you reason to believe that that story is true. Well, believers, that's exactly what Paul gives us here in verse 11. As this fifth Powerful proof of Jesus' resurrection. What Paul is saying here in verse 11 is, Paul says, listen, no matter who is doing the preaching, it doesn't matter if it's me. Paul says it doesn't matter if it's one of the twelve, one of the apostles. It doesn't matter if it's some New Testament prophet. It doesn't matter if it's some local church pastor. Paul says the message is the same. The universal message that's being preached by all of us is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus, which is part of the gospel message. Paul is telling these Christians, listen, every sermon, every church plant, every testimony that's being spoken out in public, every epistle that's being written, all of these things are going on, and at the core of every one of them is the gospel message. The message of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. So Paul is saying it doesn't matter where this gospel is going to work. It doesn't matter who preaches it. All we know is this life-changing message of Jesus' atoning death and his resurrection. It is going out. It's going out with truth. It's going out with power. It's going out universally. It's all being preached equally. Paul says on all fronts, by all kinds of people, in all different places, here's this message of the gospel. The message of Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus raising again. The gospel. This message, this universal message is going out in every way, in every direction, and everywhere it goes, it is transforming people's lives forever. 
And Paul says, that is proof. That is proof that Jesus did indeed die for our sins. And he did raise again, rise again for our justification. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul wrote these amazing words. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friend, praise God today. Praise God. This is the same message that you and I carry with us today. This is our message. This is our hope. What do we carry with us even as we leave this place today? It's this universal message. It's only this message that will ever transform someone's life. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's the only thing that's ever going to change anyone's life. It's the message of Jesus Christ. He takes away our sins, and He rose again the third day, and He has victory, so we have victory. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the universal message we carry to this world, and it's the only message that will truly change this world. Friends, as we draw to a close here this morning, my prayer is that you will go from this place today, friend, with your heart filled filled with such confidence that Jesus did burst out of that tomb. And He did it so that your soul might be redeemed for all eternity. Christian friend, our New Testament Christianity is a faith that stands on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we are still in our sins. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. Without the resurrection, our hope for eternal life is in vain. But praise God, believers, on that Sunday morning when Jesus conquered death, you conquered it with him. You defeated death. Because of the, because of the resurrection, you are now guaranteed resurrection life. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So believer, listen to me. Just like that little boy in the art gallery, don't be afraid to tug on a few shirts and talk about Jesus and his resurrection. It is the greatest event in human history, and as such, the Bible does give us powerful proofs about it so that we might receive it with joy and then declare it with jubilation. And friends, with that, I pray the Lord will grant every one of you a blessed resurrection day filled with all the joy of Jesus Christ, your Savior, and that you will go from here today confident in this Savior who rose from the dead so that one day you and I might join Him in eternal life. Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here 
on Preaching for a Change.